And we, I ran down as best I could, jumped on the side of his window and said, don't go, don't go. Uh, we're off the Bly Star. And his response was, you're dead. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. This time, the conclusion to a story of survival and loss in a remote corner of the earth. All the way from the cold waters off the south of Australia, this episode comes to us from Off Track, an Australian podcast a lot like ours, all about the environment and people who are in it. In part two of this story, presenter Ann Jones brings the story from 1973 into the present day. In fact, this man, named Mick, is the only living survivor of the sinking of the Blythe Star. Uh, We're off the Blythe Star, and his response was, you're dead. So no one up, and we made here, and we made up there. So, he... he, (laughs) Our impact on this globe is so large, and yet we're so small as an individual in the ocean. This episode is a story of physical isolation off the southern end of Tasmania, when a ship called the Blythe Star ran into some trouble. They were terribly sunburnt, um, their feet were swollen, they, none of them had shoes on, the captain uh, had his feet bandaged. Um, they were looking wretched, to, to say the least. Are you from uh, the mainland? Or yeah, Maine? I'm Victoria. Would you like to say hello to your family and just tell them that I, you're pretty fit? I would like fit? to say hello to my wife if I could. Stand back! Excuse me, sir, can you tell us uh, the names of the people surviving? Well, I don't know if I should. I don't know. Well, all I ever wanted to do was to go to sea. I loved it. There was nothing else, nothing else I wanted to do. Now, I've never spoke like this anywhere. Um, You're the first person. Other than I was encouraged by the National Secretary of the Seamen's Union to go and address a conference of the sea survival at the Australian Maritime College in Launceston. And um, it took me, I think, days and days and days to to write my my speech and my notes. And that's the only other place I've ever talked about it with with any um, detail. My son who's a seafarer, went down to the Australian Maritime College to do his pre-sea training. And um, one of the subject matters is sea survival and case study being uh, the Bly Star. It's the first time he heard about it when he was down the college. Michael Dolman. His name's Michael Dolman. Michael Dolman, speaking with me, Anne Jones. You might know the name because he's a long-serving Deputy National Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia and previously the Victorian Trades Hall President. He's also a White Ribbon Ambassador who led 1,400 international transport workers to personally pledge against violence against women. But before any of that, he was just a young man. Probably uh, a terror, if if I uh, look back at it. Um, I was a Pretty headstrong character, bad-tempered, um, determined, um, and got into a little bit of strife uh, when I was a young bloke. So uh, the best thing that ever happened to me was I went away to sea. So I went away to sea in 1970, just turned 16. 
I was a deck boy, uh, so I was the youngest in the crew, and um, my job was to maintain the ship, work under directions from the, the bosun, which is like a foreman in a, a maritime vernacular, um, splicing ropes, splicing wires, painting, uh, learning how to steer the ship, just general functions to keep the ship well-maintained and in a safe order. How can you get anything better than that? Working out un- in the elements at sea with nothing around you but blue, blue water and blue skies, sometimes rain and bad weather, but a whole mosaic of beautiful environment. And how was it that you came to be on the Blythe Star? Yeah, it's a very interesting story in one respect. I was on the roster and it was one of those occasions I didn't want to go to sea. I've just met this beautiful woman who's now my wife, Joni McGrath at the time. Oh, she was a honey and uh, I'd lucked out. I'd done really well. So um, it was her birthday. Uh, so I arranged for a river cruise on Melbourne, on the Yarra, on the Argonaut was the name of the vessel. Uh, and there's a bit of a link, link between that and because the, the Argonaut was originally owned by the same mob that owned the Blue Star. I got shanghaied uh, on the Friday. I put a bit of an argument on about it, nothing I could do. And uh, I went down, joined the ship in Hobart. And while I was struggling to survive, my now wife was partying and having a cake party uh, at her house with her family and friends, um, oblivious to the circumstances I was going through at exactly the same time. Well, I joined the ship. It was a very small ship, uh, 320 tonnes. It was carrying superphosphate in bags and keg beer and other uh, bits and pieces to King Island. We, uh, we sailed uh, late afternoon on the 12th of um, October, 1973. The weather was quite calm. It was just rolling swell. I had a helm duty during the night, up early hours, and then at um, about 8, 8.30, the ship took a starboard list that's to the right. It corrected itself. Then it took a further list, which was a death roll. It just went over. I got thrown out of the bunk. My colleague who shared the cabin with me, Mick Power, was on the wheel. And as I looked out of the porthole, it was just water. Um, the, the porthole and that side of the ship was emerged in water. However, when I got to the, to the alleyway to get out of the ship, um, there was water pouring in from the companionway uh, on the poop deck. So I started heading aft to get up that uh, companionway to get out on deck. I bumped Malcolm McCarroll, uh, one of the seafarers in the laundry, trying to shut a porthole. And we never spoke a word, but we just looked at each other and knew it was wasting his time doing that job. So I put my hand out, pulled him, and we both got out on the poop deck. And uh, by this time, the ship was almost at a 90-degree uh, list on the starboard side. Now, I can tell you there's nothing more frightening than standing on a platform, in this case, a ship for me, um, and slowly watching it disappear from under you, and there is nothing nothing within Kui. The lifeboats were unserviceable. You couldn't get them out because of the uh, list of the vessel. Uh, the bosun was having a terrible time trying to get the life raft to be uh, launched. And I was in a pair of jocks, having been thrown out of the bunk. And the water was freezing and the ship was just going further down and further down. And, and there was just, it's just a, a, the most scariest thing you could imagine. At that minute, not much looking in your, in your favour. Well, thankfully, the bosun, uh, Stan Leary, got the uh, life raft over the side. And as you may be aware, you've got to pull the painter and the, everyone's heart is just holding its breath until the last pull to make sure that the gas cylinder impl- explodes. And it did, and uh, we all got into the raft. 
we drifted probably 20, 30 metres uh, with the wind and the ship just came up on its stern and just disappeared with the stern going first and then slowly, slowly, and the bow disappeared. Spectacular sight, if nothing else, a spectacular sight. And, of course, we were quite happy that we're all safe in the life raft and we figured that we would be rescued pretty soon, not to be the case. Well, these rafts are, thankfully, uh, pretty sturdy vessels. They're round by nature and they've got a canopy on top. They're not the most comfortable thing uh, to be in, but certainly better than not being in one at all. And you have provisions. You have uh, barley sugar, uh, some biscuits and tin water and a a medical supply and some patches and uh, bales and all that stuff and paddles to, uh, to manipulate. And we found out once we got settled into the in the life raft there'd be no mayday set off the captain didn't get a mayday away um, so nobody knew um, that we had sunk uh, and we were in a life raft and days just went into days and days and um, we were okay of course we were quite buoyed by the fact we're all alive and all in the life raft and um, we weren't overly concerned that um, our life was in at risk at that point Um, but then we had a tragedy. Uh, John Sloan, who was the second engineer, uh, was never, never comfortable in the raft and um, he just he, he passed away. And, uh, I still don't know to this day what the cause of it was. Exposure in, in the main and cold. Um, and um, we all made a determination to keep his body on, on the, in the raft with us uh, on the, in the expectations that we would be rescued in due course and we could send his body home to his family to be appropriately buried and what have you. Unfortunately, time went on and that wasn't available to us. I think the captain said a few Christian words or whatever and um, we slipped his body over the side and um, I thanked John because uh, he had a singlet that I took and a pair of socks actually before uh, we we, um, put him over the side. And I knew damn well that he would, he'd be more than happy about that uh, uh, for his fellow shipmates to, um, to use his, a bit of his clothing to keep warm. So that was a real low and we sort of uh, dipped into a degree of depression and, and, um, and weren't talking too much to each other. But we have things to do. We had to continue the morale and we had to continue to keep the, the raft dry. The weather was absolutely appalling and um, uh, at times the raft would Constantina into itself and you'd have the people on the left and right hand sides of the raft smashing into each other. We'd have enormous waves bursting through the canopy um, so we had to get the water out, continually keeping the water out. We were wet the whole time. Uh, we had to keep lookouts so we, we used to open a little part of the canopy so someone could um, keep their head out. And uh, But then we got um, we had weather that just kept blowing us further and further south and if had we kept going we would have ended up in Heard Island or Antarctica. Um, it was extremely cold, no sign of any land, uh, not even birds. And if you can't see birds at sea, you're, you're, away, you're a fair way from land. And um, thankfully, um, uh, the current and prevailing weather changed and brought us back up to Shooton Island, which is on the, uh, on the eastern side of Tasmania. So we travelled all the way up there. Uh, I was on lookout one night and um, we also knew there was a lot of Japanese fishing boats that worked in that area and we could see a Japanese fishing boat. It was lit up like a Christmas tree with the lights on deck 
We shot flares off. It started coming in our direction. We shot flares off and the vessel turned and, and disappeared. And um, that, that was shattering, shattering stuff. Uh, I'd like to cut them some slack and say they didn't see it because of the deck lights, but uh, I've, I'm finding it very hard to do so and I haven't done for uh, all those years. Now, afloat aboard a circular, inflatable life raft in a dead man's singlet and socks, the men had passed more than a week of days and nights and days and nights just interminably paddling and bailing against waves and winds and currents and floating close to shore and then away again, maddened victims of forces greater than any man's willpower. Their feet were constantly wet with seawater, which made them swell and split, and they drank water from emergency tins. They drifted right around the bottom of the island state, back where they came from, past the bay that leads to Hobart, and no ship saw them. There's these massive big rock formations called the lanterns, and they're like pinnacles that come out of the ocean with gaps between them where the water just runs through them. And uh, uh, Mick Power was uh, paddling, and we're in really good spirits because we are making great headway, and we sort of open the canopy a little bit to act like a sail to pull us along as well. And Mick said, I think you better have a look at this. We're not, we're getting too close to these lanterns. So uh, I said, David, just keep going, mate, we're, we're going fine. He said, I think someone better have a look. So I stuck my head out because he was paddling on his own. We had two paddles and I couldn't believe what I'd seen. Uh, we were almost on top of this. In fact, I said to Mick, do you think we can get through one of those uh, um, gaps between these pinnacles? And uh, it was overly optimistic, no way in the world. So I don't know where we got the strength from because we're probably into our eighth day by this. We paddle like madmen um, and others were massaging our cramps and our calf muscles. We just hammered it and got around the last of the lantern's pinnacle and drifted into the bay. Well, both Mick and I just collapsed it with, with exhaustion and... Where it was the first big blue he actually had in the uh, had in the uh, in the raft because um, it, we said to others it's your responsibility to keep it going now, and um, and I think we we're a little bit harsh and uh, tempers a bit a bit frayed. We got washed back out to sea again. We're all completely delirious, and uh, we'd got in close to shore somewhere and grabbed all the kelp to try to use the kelp as a, an anchor, and. Um, we started drinking all the water like we thought it was a party. We were all having the same delusional experience when we talked about it sometime later. It was just crazy. So we all wake up the next next day at some point of time and there's no water left. We drank it all. We were nowhere near the camp bed that we had were that evening before and we're back out at sea again. I have no bones about it, it was traumatic. The weather, sharks, constant threat every day when the raft was constantining and smashing each other around at it. Is this thing gonna hold up? Uh, is it gonna collapse on us? There was, you know, it, you were constantly under threat the whole time. And I would say probably two or three occasions, very close to death. It was looking really, really grim. And even the most optimistic of us were starting to worry about it all. and. Um, People were uh, getting, finding it difficult to be motivated um, and we're talking about, you know, the end. 
Um, I wasn't going to have any of that. I was, I was a bit fortunate. I was younger. I was 18. Uh, and I just wasn't having a, uh, any bit to do with that. Um, it goes a bit blank for whatever reason. How we got there, I'll never know. But next thing, we're at this bay as the dawn is coming up. I just made a decision. I'm not going back out to sea. Uh, so I jumped out of the raft. And thankfully, the water just came up to my waist. So walking along, dragging the raft behind me, we, we beached the raft and everybody got out of that raft as quickly as they could. And we were all falling over because our legs were not used to solid ground, where our legs and feet had been, you know, on the rubber bedding of the, of the life raft. So we, none of us could stand up. We were crashing and falling all over the place. Someone said, well, we're never going to get out of this canyon. Why don't we get back in the raft and paddle around? And I said, I'm not getting back in that raft. And I'll tell you to make sure we're not getting in. I went and got a knife and I cut the raft up and I made clothes out of it. I made a lap lap and a a jacket type of thing to keep the, the wind out. So I cut that up because there's no way in the world I was getting back in that raft and, and I wasn't going to let anybody else get back in it. Once I made these clothes, I walked up these hills and see if I can find civilization. Uh, and before I w- went, uh, Taz Leary, the bosun, said, here's 10 bucks. Uh, if, see if you can find a, uh, a shop and buy some cigarettes. So I stuck the 10 bucks down my jocks, which wouldn't have been the nicest place in the world to be, <laughs> even for a $10 note. So uh, I walked for um, about three or four hours, kept climbing, kept falling, climbing. It was just dense, dense bush with rock on both sides of the bay. So I came back down and said, no. And then Mick Powell fell, and we think he broke some ribs. The chief mate, Ken uh, Jones, fell, and uh, we think he broke broke his ankle. So we sent them back uh, to comfort each other to go back. And myself, Elf Simpson, the cook, and Malcolm McCarroll, we kept going. And uh, we hit sheer rock uh, straight up and down. None of us were in a fit state to take that challenge. So we said, we'll go back. And as we're walking back, we said, let's just just rest all day tomorrow and then we'll work out where we're going to go. So when I come back, there were a few of the lads were just laying around who um, hadn't gone on the walk. So I said, where's, uh, where's Ken uh, and um, John, the engineer? They said, oh, they're down the, down the beach. So I walked down and Ken Jones is sitting on um, a rock looking out to sea, taking his cardigan off. And I walked over to so what are you doing there? Come up there. And um, he was dead. He um, just, uh, just, uh, just looking out to sea, passed away. And... Uh, he was a, uh, a remarkable person. This bloke was a leader, and the moment he got in the raft, he took control. And I would hasten to say that if it wasn't for him, the motivation and the work effort and whatever would have been a totally different place. Uh, he was a, a great, great man, and um, it was, I was very sad to see him die. Then I went to look for John Eagles, who was the chief engineer. And again, he took his overalls off and was laying face down in the, um, on the beach, been washed up and down on the beach, and, um, and he wasn't in a very good condition. So I dragged him up the, up the beach. There was nothing we could do. He was, he, he would, he'd, he'd deceased. He's passed away. 
So we all came to the conclusion that we've got to get out of here, but none of us were fit enough to, to go. So we all just slept, I think, probably for 24 hours, hardly moved, and all of us had the same dreams about helicopters landing on, on, on the beach and picking us up. And it was a, a, a eerie, strange circumstance that we were sort of connected, but no one spoke a word to each other for the whole period. We are just laying on our backs, hardly moved, no food, just water. So uh, Malcolm McCarroll and myself, who were probably at that point the most fittest out of it all, said we're going to we're just going to have to push on and just keep going. And I'd, I'd rather die trying than just die here on the on this beach because uh, we'd already lost two. And um, I figured it wasn't much longer before there'd be others. So we we just announced to everybody that we're going. And um, Al Simpson, the cook, said I'm coming with you. Well, we didn't want to take Alf because he was a big man. And we seen the bush and we thought Alf would just slow us down, but he wasn't having anything of it. And he said, I'm coming with you. So the three of us headed off and we went up the left bank. And surprisingly, we did find a, a bit of a cavity to get through and to get out of the rocky area. I've never seen bush like it. Trees that had fallen down, ferns everywhere. So we walked for as long as we could. We did make a lot of progress, not at all. And um, it got too dark to go any further, so... We found a um, massive big tree in, in, the, in its root uh, structure. We made a, a bed with um, fern leaves. We just kept walking and walking and walking. And then, lo and behold, we walk out of the bush and here's a dirt track. Uh, don't know where we were. Um, and seeing a dirt track, got no idea how... Um, how enthralling just a dirt road is to someone who's been, you know, uh, in the circumstances we're in. And then we just paused for a second and I could hear something. I said, Malcolm, don't just hold up. Don't say another word. And um, I was strained to listen. Then I could hear gear change of something, a car, a truck or something. And I said, there's a, there's a car or a truck or something. And I don't know where it's coming from. And we were just so frightened that this truck would piss off if it seen us because of the disappointment we'd had everywhere else. I said, just wait. Just wait till the very last minute and we'll jump out. Don't, uh, don't let him get by. I was still covered in the raft that I chopped up, so I looked a pretty ordinary creature, and Malcolm wasn't much better. So finally this truck comes in. It's got really, really close, and then we just ran out in front. He just hit the brakes. And we, I ran down as best I could, jumped on the side of his window and said, don't go, don't go, uh, we're off the Bly Star. And his response was, you're dead. I said, no, we're not. And we made here and we made up there. So he, he, we jumped in the um, jumped in the car and um, he had minties, that's all he had. So we, uh, we got a handful of minties and started chewing them and we got Alfie Simpson and picked him up in the truck. His name was Rod Smith, the truck driver. I'll never forget his name. We got in the truck. They took us to Denali Post Office, uh, which lacks a fortune because the post officer's uh, husband was a fisherman and knew the waters very, very well. He said, describe what it looks like. So we'd done this and that. So there's a big rock in the middle and there's big rocks up that side. And there's a freshwater stream. As soon as we said freshwater stream, he said, that's Deep Glen Bay. Uh, they rang the coppers, coppers came. So the helicopter went straight to Deep Glen Bay, picked up the uh, the survivors, and the uh, police stayed there overnight with the deceased, and then they flew them out the next day. 
So how did you deal with it? You know, you're 18 years old. What happened in those first weeks after after this ordeal? Yes, well, it was... It was, it was painful because you kept making judgments on whether you could have done more for those that died or, or what if we'd done something else or, you know, but every time I'd still reconcile, there was nothing more any of us could have done. There is a an unwritten code that you never give anybody up, you don't tell tales and you don't do what. But I wasn't very impressed with the captain's role in the whole thing. He wasn't on the bridge when the ship sunk. That's why there was no mayday sent out. Uh, he showed no leadership at all uh, during the, um, the whole um, episode in the raft. Uh, so I gave evidence that I didn't think he was a fit and proper character. Michael Dolman gave evidence to that effect in the Court of Marine Inquiry. And there were so many factors that came into the sinking and the failed search for the Blythe Star. And one of the big reasons why the largest maritime search up until that point in Australian history did not locate the survivors was that the authorities didn't know which way the ship had decided to go around Tasmania. You see, the captain chose the course and he did not have to report it. So the search was split over a much wider area. But the death of the three men and the ordeal endured by those who survived was not in vain. Well, two very critical things came out, and one was that all life rafts and lifeboats have to have EPIRBs, that's the emergency positioning radio beacons, and the second one was OSREP, where, because the ship didn't tell where they were going, the search pattern was much, much bigger and uh, delayed any rescue. In fact, nobody found us except that truck driver. We found him. So at the end of the day, we saved, we saved ourselves. And I'm not being critical of the search, but now what happens, a ship has to identify with AMSA, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, that this is a route they're taking, and every 24 hours or so there has to be a, a report. Any deviation, you have to notify them. So it greatly narrows the search area. So that's a fantastic outcome out of it, and that's good. I went back to sea, and the first ship I joined was a ship called the Poulter, which was a small uh, ship running down to Tasmania, and um, it rolled like buggery. It would roll on grass, this thing, and uh, I'd done it really hard. Never forget seeing the water over my porthole. Um, and um, it was all I could do to uh, not to say, I've got to get off this ship. So I stayed, I, I weathered it out for six weeks, done my, uh, done my stint. From that point on, I'd been through uh, at sea in cyclones, in uh, all sorts of weather and what have you, and um, I've never, ever felt... Uh, other than the Poulter, never ever felt uncomfortable or nauseated by being at sea, uh, not at all. So I did get over it. Um, I, as I said, I don't speak about it. And my interest shifted too because I became a very political person. Uh, I care about human rights. I care about labour rights, trade union rights. So I had plenty of things to dwell on that were much more important than worrying about something that uh, I, have, I had no control over and, and was a, a circumstance that... It's done. It's dusted. Move on. So it didn't. It didn't diminish your fondness for the ocean. No, not at all. Quite the opposite, actually. I respect the ocean. It is enormous, uh, beautiful. It's deadly if you if you treat it uh, badly. If you don't understand what it's capable of doing, you'll be taken by the sea. And um, if you go to sea on a ships or whatever, on a surfboard or whatever it may be, you've got to have respect for that ocean because it can do some pretty powerful things.
Michael Dolman, the last surviving crew member from the Blythe Star, which capsized in 1973. He's never spoken about it before like this, and I thank him for doing so with me, Anne Jones, on Off Track. Every week, Anne Jones and the Aussie podcast Off Track take you out into the Australian wilderness with stories of science, survival, and the sounds of nature. It's easy to find Off Track in your podcast app. Search for Off Track Australia and put on your headphones to go for a ride. I'm Caroline Ballard. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.